Leonard Lopate at large. I'm Leonard Lopate. It can feel as though we've been living with the COVID-19 pandemic for years now, but it's actually been less than a year. A new documentary film called 76 Days takes us inside the hospitals of Wuhan, China, when the outbreak began during the lockdown of that city from January 23rd to April 8th of this year. It follows the stories of some of the earliest patients and the healthcare workers who worked tirelessly to try to save them. The film has been winning awards uh, at film festivals around the world, and it opens today in virtual cinemas, including Film Forum here in New York, through MTV Documentary Films. I'm very pleased to welcome the film's director, Hao Wu, to our show. Well, ni hao. Hi. Ni hao. Hi, thanks, <laughs> Leonard. Glad to be here. Didn't you grow up in China, but live in New York now? Yes, I spent the first 20 years of my life in China and came over here for schooling and then and have been staying here ever since. So you weren't in China when the lockdown of Wuhan began, were you? Because it was uh, yeah, at the I time was, uh, of the Chinese New Year celebrations. That's correct. So I flew back to China on January 23rd, the day the lockdown happened. Um, before, before that, we actually made plans to you know, to get me, my partner, and our two kids to go back to China because both my parents have late-stage cancer. I wanted them to be able to spend some precious holiday time with their grandchildren since we live so far away. But 24 hours before our departure time, we learned about this lockdown. And and in the end, we decided just, you know, I fly back to China by myself. But you would go to Shanghai. How far is Shanghai from Wuhan? Shanghai uh, is still pretty far from Wuhan, but uh, as soon as Wuhan was put under official lockdown, the rest of the country uh, just voluntarily also went into lockdown as well, because that was like in the very early days of the pandemic. And, you know, very few scientific data were available at that time uh, about the transmissibility of how deadly the virus was. So everyone in China was afraid. So even during the whole week in Shanghai, uh, Shanghai is China's largest city with 21 million um, people, but the streets were completely em- empty. And all of us just stayed home inside our apartment, uh, watching TV or looking at social media to find out more information about this um, outbreak. And, and there's been a long tradition of mask wearing in China. So I suspect you didn't see the, the kinds of protests that you see in some parts of this country. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely has been a really different experience. Even when I was because I was in the U.S. when the SARS uh, outbreak happened, so I didn't get to experience that in China. So for me, even in Shanghai, seeing everybody else was willingly wearing masks uh, really quickly, it was surprising to me. I mean, obviously my parents forced me to wear, wear a mask. I was doing that, um, but uh, yeah, it's been. So many months now in the U.S., we're still having this debate about whether COVID-19 is, uh, is real or whether we should all wear masks. That's been, yeah, being a bizarre experience. When did you first realize that this was going to be a big story? And at what point did you think that you might make a film about it? I, in my past films, I always like to do character-driven stories. Um, in, fact, in the verite style. Very style. I tend to shy away from music topics because um, I don't know as a storyteller how much I can bring to a topic that's been well covered. Um, but, um, you know, since I lived in Shanghai, 
um, during that one week, uh, you know, um, for, for, for 10 days during Chinese New Year. And I got to experience the, the, the feeling of watching a city being completely deserted um, for the first time. So in early February, when the U.S. network approached me, asked me if I wanted to make a film about COVID, coronavirus, Back then, it was not officially declared as a pandemic. Yeah, I, I jumped on. I was like, this is, you know, this is a topic that feels much closer to home. And I wanted to really try to use the filmmaker to find out what had happened. Well, at that point, was travel between the United States and China restricted already? It was getting increasingly more and more difficult. I, so what I did was I reached out to a lot of filmmakers uh, who had started filming on the ground in Wuhan. I talked to over a dozen of them. I identified my two two filmmakers who eventually became my collaborators. I actually made plans to fly back to China again and smuggle myself uh, back inside of Wuhan. But then later on, you know, the pandemic, the virus was traveling everywhere. Uh, at that time, it was still, I still wasn't sure whether I wanted the film to focus on the stories in Wuhan or include other parts of the world's story as well. So. I decided to, to, to cancel the trip and stay in New York because it was very obvious it was coming to the U.S. as well at that time. So you mentioned you had two co-directors, uh, Huaixi Chen, uh, a video reporter for Esquire China, and another you identify is Anonymous. Is Anonymous another journalist, uh, but someone who felt that he or she couldn't be named? That's right. I mean, Anonymous is a photojournalist for a local newspaper in Wuhan. That's how he knew many of the hospitals. He, um, 76 days, included footage um, shot by him in three different hospitals where she was embedded in the fourth one. So, um, yeah, I think, I think it's just uh, um, starting in March uh, because uh, the Trump administration started accusing China um, of, you know, like starting this whole pandemic and blaming China for everything, calling this virus China virus. And the Chinese government in turn um, became extremely defensive and aggressively so. So it started controlling the narratives coming out of China. Um, so a lot of people, reporters and um, uh, media professionals in China, they are really afraid of working with anybody outside of China on COVID stories. Uh, so yeah, for a while, the, my two co-directors actually stopped collaborating with me because I'm based in New York. I'm an independent filmmaker. I don't have the government sanction um, in terms of uh, um, making the story. Uh, it took me a while to cut out my film. Basically, I, I had to cut out an entire rough cut and show it to them to say, look, this is where I want to take the story um, before they, 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 they joined forces with me. But in the end, Anonymous still was afraid... He, you know, before we our premiere at Toronto International Film Festival, Anonymous was kind of nervous. He didn't know how people go, was going were going to perceive this film, how the government was going to perceive the film, and more importantly, he was not is not sure how the internet trolls who are ultra nationalistic um, in China are gonna, you know, whether they're gonna pick up any shots or take any sound bites out of context and accuse him of um, being unpatriotic. So. He opted to remain anonymous. But uh, Waishi Chen uh, is a video reporter for Esquire China. So uh, as a result, was less worried because Esquire is a foreign publication? Uh, Esquire, first of all, is a very commercial publication. And Waishi's career 
um, when she had, has always been working in Beijing, where you know, mm-hmm. and for non-state-owned uh, media companies, and also he's an aspiring documentary filmmaker. So that's why he was more willing to be to to to, to basically to identify himself with this film. But with uh, with anonymous, he's always been working for state-owned newspaper. For him, he doesn't have any aspiration to you know for fame or become a quote-unquote filmmaker, he's just like, I support what you're doing. I think it's worthwhile. But I just am so afraid of bringing any, you know, there's going to be any blowback and that might cause me to lose my job. But uh, it's not my, it's my sense that the Chinese government had little to complain about from your film. Your film is about uh, people uh, who are caught up in this whole thing. Absolutely. But COVID has become such a sensitive topic, right, globally. I, I think before the film's premiere, before the film, you know, before any anybody has watched the film publicly, our worry was more about whether anybody's going to uh, focus on uh, an image, for example, or the tone of the film, whether we are, in, we are not portraying the, the response in China heroic in, enough, for example, right? And that doesn't serve the government's propaganda needs. And, you know, there may be blowback just because of that. Uh, right now, there's a book that's been published uh, called Wuhan Diary that was uh, uh, published in the U.S. Uh, it's basically a writer who was recounting her experience living through the lockdown. There was such backlash on Chinese mm-hmm. social media. And, yeah, so that's one thing that made my, um, my co-director Anonymous extremely nervous. Well, in your director's statement, you say that you initially, quote, began researching how to expose the Chinese government's wrongdoing, suppressing whistleblowers and lying to try to conceal the outbreak. But you switched to concentrate on the personal stories of the patients and you focus on them, their families, the hospital staff. In yeah, four I hospitals in Wuhan. Yeah, I think um, that's the result of a combination of factors. Number one, because my two co-directors had shot such amazing emotional Mm. uh, footage about the human stories, right? And to me, that story, the the longer we live through this pandemic, the more I talk to filmmakers who have have been filming in in Spain, in Italy, and also in the U.S. I I started filming in, in New York in late March. I just realized those stories are so precious. They bear really direct evidence to what's happening to our capacity, you know, as, as human race to be able to help each other to live through this. So, first of all, that's so precious. I don't want anything to distract viewers from that. Secondly, I think um, there was the factor of not being able to gather anything more interesting to tell the origin of the um, COVID-19 uh, coronavirus story in Wuhan, I did reach out to investigative journalists in China, and I also talked to, you know, retired officials from the Chinese CDC. But first of all, they didn't want to be on camera. Secondly, what they told me has been so well covered in news media. I'm just like, including those in the film, mm-hmm. it's not going to provide any fresh perspective at all. Um, and thirdly, I think just living through the pandemic in New York has seen the same story happen all over again and watching the Trump administration fumbled so badly in, you know, in the COVID response here in the U.S., then I think that just actually raised more questions than providing answers uh, with regard to whether any government 
regardless of its political system, can respond effectively to this, uh, to this, uh, to a viral, unknown viral outbreak. So, so in the end, I just feel like we're still living through this crisis. It's too soon to be drawing any conclusions. So that's also part of the reason I opted just focus on the human stories. How had the uh, Chinese government reacted to uh, a previous film of yours, People's Republic of Desire, uh, which uh, <laughs> won the Grand Jury Award for Best Documentary Feature at South by Southwest in 2018? Yeah, that film was about inter uh, live streaming internet celebrities in China. Um, in China, live streaming is an extremely hot phenomenon, uh, not as much here in the U.S. I thought that film would have... Uh, you know, sort of great uh, reception in China because that's something everybody was talking about a couple of years ago. And a lot of um, distrib distributors in China were eager to distribute this film. But in the end, we just couldn't pass censors, not because this film made any kind of sort of like a direct, direct attack at the government in any way. It's just because the, the, the kind of reality portrays about Internet cultures about how young people, uh, the way they worship money, they're using internet to try to make money. It's the same thing as here, but they, in China, the Chinese censor frowned upon that, so they didn't approve the film. So with this one, I don't know, I, I feel like even though I, I don't think the government is going to have issue with, with quote unquote, any political leanings mm -hmm. in this film, but I, I do foresee that have a lot of issues with how I edit it, how I put the images together. Well, uh, many of the, the people involved are almost heroic. Uh, and then there are all the human interest stories. Uh, my guest on London Lopate at Large today here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org is Hao Hu, who's a film director, producer, and writer, um, made a number of uh, films already, including a Netflix original documentary called All in My Family. But we're discussing his film about the 76 day of lockdown in Wuhan, China. Uh, the uh, I guess when uh, it became apparent that um, there was a major pandemic that had hit the country, uh, and uh, th as I said earlier, that that's available now in some theaters like Film Forum. That's correct. Um, I think hmm. it's available in. I think right now we're still adding virtual cinemas. Right now there. There are 69 virtual cinemas in the U.S. and Canada participating in the virtual release. In the New York, it's a film forum. So um, how did your co-directors get access to the hospitals, the four hospitals and the patients? Uh, did the government want the press to have access to show that the virus was being contained so that they could calm people's fears? I think they got access is because they, they are reporters. So Wei Shi, um, he wasn't sent down to cover the lockdown by Esquire China, um, but he just wanted to find out what's happening there uh, because he, he's an aspiring documentary filmmaker. He, through his own personal connection, embedded himself with a medical team that was sent to support Wuhan local hospitals from elsewhere in China. Since he embedded with a medical team, the the you know so like the, the the local hospitals saw him with the team, just assumed that he had got all the clearance and allowed him to feel inside the hospital. With anonymous, since he's a local reporter, he knew a lot of the hospitals there already. And and the beginning of the lockdown, it was absolute chaos in Wuhan. 
And uh, there was, um, I think, at the beginning, the government really didn't have enough bandwidth to think about controlling media access uh, at that point. And the hospitals themselves actually welcomed reporters coming and report because they were running out of PPEs. They were overwhelmed. They needed more support. So, um, yeah, so and for, for like a couple of weeks at the beginning of lockdown, there was um, a lot of actually press freedom in China before the government started camp- clamping down again. Now, this film just won the Best Cinematography Award at Doc NYC. So I'm guessing it wasn't shot on cell phones. What kind of equipment and crews were they allowed to bring into the hospitals? They were pretty much one-man band. My two co-directors, they, 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 they didn't know each other. They still haven't met each other in person. So they were uh, filming individually and alone, um, and they had to put on all these, like, uh, layers and layers of PPE, just as the healthcare mm-hmm. professionals in the film, and uh, personal protective equipment PPE. Yeah, the mask and, and mm-hmm. goggles and hazmat suits. Um, they they basically they could only carry a small camera, uh, just one of those uh, DSLR cameras inside the contamination zone. And then once they filmed, they couldn't take the equipment out. Uh, because anytime they take it out, they have to thoroughly uh, disinfect it, and that could be damaging to the equipment. So it was a very challenging uh, filming environment. I really I want to applaud my two co-directors for, for, for having taken enormous personal health risk. To be sure, they, they had to have been concerned that they might become infected themselves. Absolutely. I, I think with Wei Xi, he suffered from high fear for a week. Uh, and in February, for a while, he thought he had COVID. But then later when he went to the hospital, got tested, it turned out to be negative. But still, right now, we still don't know. because The early tests were not exactly accurate. Now, in, in the film, we see all of the hospital staff covered head to toe with PPE. Did they have to contend with the kinds of shortages of PPE that we experienced here at the beginning of the outbreak? Uh, yes. Uh, in the first couple of weeks, the PPE shortage was extremely severe, but that kind of uh, problem was also uneven. Depends on, there, there, there are a couple of hospitals, uh, just like the news report here. Um, like when I, back in April, when I was talking to my uh, doctor friends uh, in New York, really depends on the hospital. Some hospitals were running out, but other ho- hospitals were relatively um, well stocked with PPEs. Uh, in Wuhan, it, it, at the very beginning, it was yes, there was a um, shortage of PPE. But uh, like I mentioned earlier, some hospitals situation were worse in some hospitals than others. Did they have to resort to wearing trash bags, uh, like some hospitals here had to? Um, I think in some in some circumstances there there were, um, but then I feel like that those are more. Uh, one-off situation, just like here. I really, I, I, based on my understanding, once again, I didn't do any detailed digging uh, um, in this area. I think even here, even during, um, during the worst crisis in New York, only some hospitals were as, situation was as dire as that. It's interesting that uh, we first thought that the uh, the virus came here mostly from people who were traveling from, from China, but it turns out that uh, a lot of it came from people coming from Italy. So, is there a lot of a lot of travel between China and Italy? 
I, you know, th this is one of the new things, right? The, the, the new research just came out that shows there were COVID cases in Italy back in October or something. That's way wow. back before they, they discovered COVID cases in uh, at least in the hospitals in Wuhan. So that's one of the reasons I really didn't want to even bring up any news clips in the film to show, you mm -hmm. know, what the scientists, what news media were discovering uh, while Wuhan was going through that lockdown. Because there's just so much, uh, you know, even in, within the scientific community, there hasn't been consensus on every question yet, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah. We're still not sure how it started, yeah. assuming, assuming that it came from bats, but uh, that's about, not everybody agrees. Yeah, I mean, uh, from a biological perspective, it definitely started, it's so close to the, uh, it's actually close to the SARS, right? Virus, uh, mm -hmm. which was uh, found in bat. Yes, there, there are a lot of trade and tra um, air, um, airplane traffic between U.S. and Italy. Uh, it could um, conceivably, you know, starting in China way before, right? Like early in the fall uh, last year and went to Italy, got mutated. Or it could be, uh, right now, I haven't looked through the most recent research uh, in detail enough to be able to, to address that. But yeah, there's still so many questions that, that are remaining un unanswered at this point. The earliest scenes in your film show hospital staff trying to fend off crowds of people who are clamoring to get in, uh, and uh, they just allow a few at a time. Uh, so were the hospitals in Wuhan overwhelmed at first? Oh, yeah, big, big time. I think um, we, we don't have footage because my co-director didn't start filming um, during the very first like three or four days in Wuhan. During the first three or four days, I think, I might be wrong uh, about the number, there were only three or max four hospitals that were designated as uh, fever hospitals. So anybody who shows any fever, flu-like symptoms, were asked to go to those hospitals. That caused mm. huge panic uh, within the city of Wuhan. People were rushing to this hospital. Those hospital hallways were oh, just like full of people, and people were fainting in the hallway. So unfortunately, we don't have like good camera footage about that. There, 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 there are a few like self footage shot on cell phones uh, of those type of scenes on Chinese social media. But in the end, we opted not to um, not to include those footage in the film just to for artistic reasons. But you do have the staff telling people, "Don't panic. Everyone will be admitted." Uh, were there shortages Absolutely. of things, of hospital beds and ventilators, the sorts of things that uh, you might expect? Yes. Uh, so I think um, starting in February, there was a big drive among the Chinese diaspora uh, worldwide to secure masks and other equipment, right? to ship uh -huh. back to China. And all over China, uh, the government basically is mobilizing all the resources it has to ship everything to Wuhan to support uh, local hospitals. What uh, about staff? Yeah. Did the staff from other parts of China come to help out as well? Yes. Uh, in 76 days, uh, a few of the um, um, healthcare professionals featured, there were and one of the male nurse arrived from, from, uh, from Shanghai. So. Uh, I think back in late spring, early summer, there was a scare in Beijing that there might be an outbreak happening in Beijing. I think all over China, people were really worried because 
a lot of the medical resources, including staff, have already been sent to Wuhan. If there's another major outbreak in another major city, I don't know whether China could handle that at that, at that point. Well, we had the same kind of problem when New York became the epicenter. Uh, people came from all over the country to help out. And now they're asking New York <laughs> the doctors and nurses uh, to, to come to their cities. Uh, what kinds of hours were doctors and nurses working? I, I actually don't know exactly. I think they were running very long shifts, like 10 to 12 mm -hmm. hour shifts. And then the go stay in the hotels, specifically designated as quarantine hotels for healthcare workers, because they don't want to, they can't go back home for fear of bringing the virus back to their families. And then after um, sleep and short rest, they come back to the hospital again. It's a very long, exhausting, and emotionally draining experience for the doctors and nurses. In the later scenes, the hospital seemed clean and not overcrowded. Do you think the outbreak was managed better there than it was in New York in the early spring when we were first hit by it, when we saw reports of, of patients uh, lining the hallways of hospitals, putting in makeshift rooms and beds? Yeah, it's it's hard for me to say. But right now, because once again, we're still living through this, right? Um, we'll see by the, end, by the end, hopefully in a year, by the time we all get vaccines, and then we can look back and evaluate each government's response. But... If you look at a lot of the Asian countries' response, not just China, but also South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, um, it, you know, in some ways, these countries have been able to manage it well. I, I think um, because over there, uh, maybe, I'm, I'm speculating, I'm just, I'm not a sociologist or historian, um, maybe over there in these East Asian countries, the, the population has a different relationship with the state. They follow the state directives better, and there are more willingness to, you know, put on masks, to uh, f follow behavioral guidelines that's for the collective good. And also because East Asia has suffered through so many waves of outbreaks, right, like uh, bird flu and SARS, I think people over there are just generally more scared. Whereas here, I think we've been, in the U.S., we've been fortunately spared from a lot of the uh, uh, past outbreaks uh, in the mm -hmm. past. And also, we just have such big political divide in this country. The same thing's happening in Africa, where they've had to deal with previous pandemics there. Uh, actually, the, uh, the public is uh, more open to... to uh, to following the rules. <laughs> uh, so yep. I, I guess uh, in this country, people are saying, uh, if you tell them to wear a mask, that's an invasion of the First Amendment right. Uh, but th there are some troubled people in your film. You follow the stories of several patients, and one of them is an elderly man the nurses call grandpa. <laughs> is that an affectionate term that's used for any man over a certain age? Hello? Are you there? No. Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if they call, would call anybody over a certain age grandpa. Um, yeah, that's a way for people to, um, you know, respectfully address the elders mm -hmm. in China. 
He's difficult. He suffers from dementia. He keeps wandering out of his room, trying to go home. But the nurses treat him with respect and compassion nonetheless. Uh, is part of this story the, the quiet heroism of the healthcare workers at that awful time? Um, I guess so. But when I was editing the film, I was just going through and trying to look for those moments that resonated with me personally mm-hmm. as I build the story together. I think, first of all, it's uh, the credit, most of the credit uh, go to my two co-directors because they were making directing decisions, filming decisions on the ground in terms of what to capture, right? What mm-hmm. moments, what characters to follow. And secondly, as I sit down and pull all their footage together, try to build a film, uh, in some ways, I, I'm... I was affected by my own personal experience because my grandpa uh, was diagnosed with late-stage liver cancer um, in early February, and he passed away in early March. Um, I didn't even get to say goodbye to him because, uh, you know, first of all, his condition deteriorated really rapidly. And also by March, and there was severe restriction, um, you know, between uh, in the air traffic between U.S. and China. I didn't get to say goodbye. So for me, I was go. I you know started editing with a heavy heart, uh, with a guilty conscience. So I guess subconsciously, I was always looking for those moments of just little details of people being nice to each other, people trying to connect, people trying to comfort each other. Because COVID nineteen is such a horrible, horrible disease. Um, yeah, I, I was just looking for those moments. So maybe that's that kind of my emotional state at that point kind of helped shape the film as is, as it is right now. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. music from Wuhan, China. Uh, we decided not to play uh, any music about uh, that celebrated the New Year, despite the fact that the film takes place during the Chinese New Year, because that music sounded a little too happy. We're talking about a film called 76 Days, which opens today in virtual cinemas, including the film forum here in New York, and uh, that's through MTV documentary films, with Hao Wu, who is uh, the director of the film. Uh, He's also a producer, writer, and a blogger. And we may get to the blogging a little later. Uh, He's made a number of films over the years. Uh, We were talking about uh, some of the stories that you follow. Another one is of a couple who, um, a young couple having a baby. Uh, The mother is thought to be in the late stages of COVID and her baby is delivered by C-section and then taken away to a children's hospital. Was that done routinely for babies born to COVID-positive mothers? Yes, I think um, during the lockdown, any COVID-positive um, mother, as soon as they, you know, um, deliver the baby, the baby will be separated from them, just in case the baby is contracting, um, you know, can would contract the virus from the mother, and also 
the, the babies will be in so, sort of like uh, being observed as well to see if the baby shows any symptoms of COVID, um, uh, COVID-19. Because at that time, there's very little data about how long the virus will stay in your body, as well as even now, we still don't know how, uh, whether people after they recover from COVID-19, whether they can, whether, you know, a big, a big proportion of them will get reinfected. Uh, so they, the couple goes into war, quarantine. Were they eventually able to reunite with their child? Yes. So the mother, first of all, had to recover from the uh, from the uh, inside the hospital, got tested to make sure she needed to have at least two or three tests that came back negative, and then she reunited with the hus- husband who was waiting for her in a quarantine hotel. Mm-hmm where they had to stay in the hotel room for another 14 days and subjected to repeated um, you know, PCR tests to make sure they were completely negative. And then they were allowed to go home. Once they got home, they called a children's hospital uh, just to, to, trying to figure out you know, whether, when they could pick up their baby because the mother had, hadn't even touched the baby since mm. she delivered the baby. It's been... Over more than a month now, at that time. In, in some cases, whole families were hospitalized. Were they allowed to share rooms or or see each other? Uh, no, not at all. So in the film, there was an old couple who were admitted to the same ward, actually just a couple of rooms down, hospital rooms down from each other, and the 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 wife wanted desperately to at least have a, you know, just a, a peek of her husband. But they were not allowed to because the uh, the hospitals were so afraid of anybody going inside the hospital hallways and cross-infecting each other because they didn't know whether the virus was mutating really fast or not. And the, the film opens with a woman begging to see her father who's just died. She wants to see him one last time but isn't allowed to. Uh, I guess that's because she could have been infected by being in contact w- with his body, even though he was dead? That's correct. Um, that's, um, so th- that's why this disease is just so horrible, because we don't, um, people, families, didn't get a chance to say goodbye to their loved ones. Um, that's not uniquely ch- Chinese approach, though. I, I, based on my understanding, even here in the U.S., I think in the mm-hmm. early days, families were not allowed to uh, visit their sick ones. Uh, in the hospital or when, after they passed away. In another scene, we see a nurse calling the families of patients who've died and then going down to the street to personally return their loved one's belongings, and, and they apologize for not saving them. Uh, was, was she uh, an exception, or were all the hospital staff that sympathetic? Yeah, that's a great question. I was talking to a friend of mine who spent a lot of time and going up in China with the hospital system, she's like, uh, she, she she doesn't remember the, the medical professionals were so nice to her uh, mm-hmm. in normal time, quote unquote normal time. Uh, I I talked to my co-directors repetitively, trying to understand why is that? Why the 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 patient, um, you know, so like a healthcare staff relationship is so different during COVID. I, I, in the end, we, we, we concluded because it's such a special time. This is almost like a war time. So that's why I think um, people are a lot more accommodating of each other, uh, first of all. And uh, 
um, people are a lot more willing to be in support of each other just because the, uh, the, the circumstances uh, were so extraordinary. One of the uh, staff says, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm not sure everybody would see it that way. Yeah, I, I put in there, I don't know, I'm, I, I'm a little bit, you know, I was like, oh my God, so somebody's doing this as a once in a time opportunity, whereas other people are dying. Um, mm -hmm. there, I, I mean, my own personal feelings, I, I feel a little bit ironic, but then I guess other people, a lot of the audience took that shot after watching that bit, and they, took, they came away with being very, you know, they feel like the, the, the medical staff were being very heroic. I guess it's young people, right? Young people everywhere. There's a, when there's something, they, they just need to feel needed, right? They need to feel like they're doing something worthwhile. So we see them sleeping in chairs, decorating their hazmat suits with drawings of flowers, blowing up latex gloves like balloons, writing get well soon on them and then putting them on patients' beds. So they... Um, uh, I, I wonder whether they do this normally or whether the, they saw the pandemic as a chance to do something important uh, more than just their routine work. Uh, I think they were able to do that in those hospitals um, in the second half, later, half, uh, later parts of the lockdown, because things have, have calmed down by then and they have enough resources in the hospital, right? So they could take a break. Um, in normal times in China, I think the medical systems are, are constantly overwhelmed. Um, doctors and nurses constantly running around uh, treating patients. They, I think even if they ha have the heart, they don't have the time um, you know, to, to, to even um, do any of that. Now, uh, all of the medical treatment is free in China, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> My friend reminded me when I was having a conversation with her, and um, it's like this is really, I mean, a lot of time the tension between hospitals and patients in China came from, um, you know, the, you know, basically a lot of times about payment, right? Whether you're getting um, the quality of care you think you deserve based on the price you're paying. But with this COVID-19, the lockdown you will have, um, the Chinese government really went all out. Um, it was completely free. Anybody who was uh, admitted into hospital or getting tre free treatment, I think that contributed to a sort of like a, a very cordial relationship between the m medical teams and the patient. Now, we have seen a resurgence of COVID-19 in the United States recently, and actually through um, most of Europe, they're going through a new wave. What about China? As far as I know, because I talk to my friends and my parents and my sister's family constantly, they live in China, and also my co-directors in Wuhan. Um, based on our conversation, life in China has kind of returned to some kind of normal. Uh, you can go to bars, restaurants, you can movie theaters are re have reopened, and you can take, you know, uh, you can fly anywhere within China for domestic travel. Uh, it's a uh, yeah, it's very different um, because back in February, March, I think a lot of Chinese still wanted to come to the U.S. to escape the virus over there. But now many Chinese wanted to go back and it's been increasingly difficult um, to, for people outside of China to get back inside of China. Because the Chinese government is, uh, fears that they may start a new wave in China. 
now that China absolutely. has it under control. Yeah, absolutely. I think recently, if you look at the government, the numbers published by the government, a lot of the new cases, um, you know, are people in quarantine. So anybody who fly from outside of China back in, you have to uh, undergo a 14-day quarantine in a hotel room, and you have to be tested. A lot of the uh, new confirmed cases came from um, these travelers. So uh, uh, would you think that we had something to learn from the way the Chinese handled the pandemic? I think in a situation like this, we can we should always learn from each other, right? I mean, it's not like China did everything right. China, China there are things China needs to learn from other countries who manage this also effectively, like South Korea and Taiwan. Um, but <clears> overall, I think U.S., we probably need to learn from how several of the Asian countries are doing right, um, you know, in, in terms of taking this seriously, respect science, willing to work collaboratively, and also having really strong leadership who try to mobilize the entire society and look, you know, treat a pandemic as seriously as a war. Because, you know, in, in, in doing war times, U.S. was able to mobilize itself. Um, but just this time, I think partly is also because of the lack of clear leadership at the very top, how to look, how the entire society should, uh, you know, should um, work together to, to, to beat this virus back. You would have thought that uh, when uh, Donald Trump was uh, expressing so much friendship with Xi Jinping, that he would have uh, asked him for some advice. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I don't know what, what, what was going on in his head, um, but yeah. I think I don't think anybody yeah. does. Yeah, it's just hard to be honest. Though I mean, when I was in Shanghai, right during Chinese New Year, even though everybody else around me was scared because I didn't live through SARS, the coronavirus didn't feel that real to me until I started watching the rushes from my co-directors mm. because there were. They were showing me how bad this virus truly uh, is. Uh, I mean, I think right now in the U.S., we've been, I mean, you know, we've been mostly talking about COVID in statistic terms, in, in political terms. We really haven't got much chance or patience to look at the human stories, to understand the damage it can do to individuals and families. So hopefully my film will able to provide this kind of visual evidence uh, to remind people to take this um, to take this virus seriously. I'm speaking with Hao Wu, H-A-O-W-U, uh, the film director responsible for the uh, a new film called 76 Days. Uh, it is available uh, right now uh, by going to the virtual cinema film forum here in New York. There are other virtual cinemas around the country. Uh, uh, and uh, I, I, um, I, I wonder about how you actually put this whole thing together. Uh, were the filmmakers sending you raw footage for you to edit here? Yes. Um, I, my two, co um, two collaborators, they were filming on the ground in Wuhan hospitals and every night, once they, you know, they only take their uh, storage cars out and they leave the um, cameras inside the contamination zone. And then they will back up their footage um, onto a cloud service in China. And then they, because they shared their logging credentials with me, 
I could just download the footage in oh. in New York. You didn't have to wait for plane to deliver it. Uh, actually, if they have to wait for UPS to deliver it, uh, most likely it would be, you would have been stopped by <laughs> <laughs> <the> Chinese customs. <laughs> but with cloud, I, I guess the great firewall hasn't figured out how to detect "quote unquote" you know sensitive uh, footage. Uh, so I was able to download it. Now, how many hours did you start with uh, for what's now an hour and a half film? I don't know. Nowadays with digital, it's hard to estimate. I think I started off with 350 hours of footage around wow. the ballpark. Um, because I, in addition to what they film inside the hospital, I actually also asked them to go outside the hospital to film volunteers, to film, we even filmed um, like a dissident who was trying to sue the government because his father had had contracted COVID-19 in the hospital for some unrelated procedure. And, you know, we also filmed some of the early whistleblower doctors, but in the end, um, because those characters were not as compelling, we, you know, I did, didn't include them in the, in the cut at all. How, uh, you write that you began working with your co-directors in early February, but that in late March, they had to stop working with you. What happened to change the situation? <laughs> because the geopolitical finger pointing between U.S. and China uh, became really bad. Um, President Trump started calling this Wuhan virus, China virus, China plague, and uh, and 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 the Chinese government just like became really aggressively defensive. Um, the government really tried to control. Um, you know the narratives coming out, coming out of China about its. Uh, uh, COVID response, especially in Wuhan. So there was, uh, um, there was in, I think it's an increasing tightness of media control. And my two co-directors were getting afraid. Um, <clears throat> we have never met before. We never collaborated before. I've only seen them once in individually uh, on video calls only once with each, each of them. So they, they didn't know where I wanted to take the film. So but since they they already shared the footage with me, and uh, I I decided at that time just to keep on just editing and cut out a film and show it to them um, to to let them know what what I wanted to make was just a very personal humanistic film about what's happening on the front line of those kind of human stories. And, and they got to see it. Yeah, they got to see it. They saw the rough cut, and that's how they agreed to. You know, collaborate once again. Has your family in China been affected by the pandemic in any way? Um, not directly. I think um, it was just a lot of fear because for a long time we didn't know how soon the government could put uh, this under control. If anything, the only person who was affected was my grandpa. Uh, as soon as he was diagnosed with late stage liver cancer, we couldn't find a hospital bed for him. Mm. Uh, in most of the major cities, the, all the hospitals, they stopped taking patients, non-essential patients. And uh, they were reserving the hospital beds for likely COVID outbreak in the rest of the country in China. Luckily, that didn't happen. But still, my, my, my grandpa couldn't get a bed. I, I had He sounds like he had an essential, he was an essential patient, obviously. 
But they didn't consider cancer essential enough. Um, not, 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 not essential. It's just not something that they could treat in the hospital setting. And in mm -hmm. fact, once they were admitted inside the hospital, they run the additional risk of contracting COVID. Right. So that's why they didn't want to take him. It took us a while to be able to find a bed for him. And then in the end, I couldn't get to see him and say goodbye. Mm. And has uh, your family been able to see this film? Is this film available in China? Uh, no, not right now. Um, my family hasn't seen it. And uh, I don't think I'm going to make the film available in China. First of all, one of the co-directors licensed his footage to um, Chinese domestic production company as well to be made to be incorporated into a, to a film. And secondly, I, I just don't want to deal with the film censorship process mm -hmm. in China. I'm pretty sure, for example, like the ending, the ending right now is, uh, is basically a collective grief. Um, I don't know whether the censor will be okay with that. They probably, they may, they may, they might want something more triumphant at the end for the film. <laughs> Now, you've also been a blogger known as Qian Yi. Why didn't you use your own name? And what does Qian Yi mean? Oh. That was so long ago. How did you find out? <laughs> <laughs> Let me do a little research. <laughs> um, I was, uh, in 2004, I moved back to China, uh, you know, after having lived in the U.S. for uh, 12 years. Uh, I started blogging. That was, you know, 2004. That was still people were still blogging back then, and you know, I was using a pseudo name because uh, in my blog sometimes I talk about political sensitive stuff topics. Mm -hmm. Now you also made a uh, an original documentary for Netflix called All in My Family. Uh, two things: what is it about, and second of all, is it still available on Netflix? Uh, yes, it's available because, because um, it's a Netflix original film, so it's going to live in perpetuity. As ah, Netflix. congratulations. Uh, yeah, so the, the film is a very personal documentary, personal film about the process of me and my um, same-sex partner have, having kids through surrogacy and taking and how my traditional family back in China reacted to the process. At first, there were my mom, especially my mom, they, she vehemently objected to my plan to have kids. But later on, once we had kids, and, uh, you know, she's gradually turned around because of her love for her son. And in the end, we, you know, we took the kids back to China to meet the grandpa, to meet my, meet my grandpa. And then I was faced with the decision to tell or not to tell my grandpa about our quote-unquote modern family. So that's the story. Well, congratulations on the response to this film, 76 Days, already getting a lot of attention and, uh, and awards. Uh, it, As I said earlier, it opens today in virtual cinemas around the country. Uh, in New York, it's film form. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you for having me. And... Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to our segment producer, Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. 
Also, many thanks to Jesse Lint, my executive producer, and to our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all the important work that they do throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And we're also available as a podcast at iTunes or anywhere else that podcasts are available. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. Uh, if you'd like to comment on any of our shows or you just want to say hello, you can reach me directly at my email address here, leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to take uh, just a few minutes uh, to ask you for your support for WBAI. We are hoping that all of our listeners who have the finances to do so will step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they are comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the kind of unique, in-depth content that we bring you on this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to, to keep this historic station the only one on the New York City radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored on the air. We uh, rely 100% on our listeners. Uh, your, um, your contribution is tax-deductible. Uh, but uh, uh, the important thing is that you help keep it going, this uh, free speech radio station. And uh, if you can see your way to becoming a BAI buddy, that's somebody who uh, contributes uh, $10, $15, $20, whatever you're comfortable with uh, a month to help us keep going and to be able to plan for the future, we would really appreciate your stepping up and and uh, making that call now 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org um, we really need your help to keep this station uh, uh this uh, the only one in new york city radio dial is completely listener sponsored on the air so why not make that call in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, so we can keep bringing you the kind of unique long form interviews you just won't hear on any other station. And again, the number one more time 516 620 3602, or you can go to give to wbai.org on the web. And our great thanks to everyone who's already stepped up to support this program, whether it's uh, through a contribution or by becoming a BAI buddy uh, during this terrible ban- pandemic. We really, uh, we're really very grateful. And we hope that you can join us again uh, for Monday show when Rebecca Rag Sykes will discuss her fascinating new book called Kindred, Neanderthal Life, Love, Death, and Art. We hope to see you then. Have a great weekend.